Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about being in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we're living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance and in showing up for liberation? My name is Will Green. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith. Surge is a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people for racial justice. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people working to resist racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback and accountability from listeners of color. A little little bit about me. I'm a United Methodist pastor who lives on land that was inhabited by Penacook people before the Christian invasion of 1620. I'm a white, cisgender, gay man, pronouns he, him, his, who serves a congregation in so-called Andover, Massachusetts. In addition to ministry in my church setting, I'm also involved in the work of prison abolition. I believe in a world without prisons. In this episode, I'll talk a little about what it's been like for me to learn about abolition and to develop a radical anti-racist perspective. It's fairly new for me. I'll be doing this uh, by reflecting on resurrection stories from the Gospel according to John from this week's lectionary. Specifically, I'll be referring to the story about the Apostle Thomas. But just so you know, spoiler alert, I'm not going to be talking about doubt. Doubt is a fine thing to explore, but there are other angles to these stories than focusing on doubt as it relates to resurrection. I've been in ministry for a while now. This is my 16th Easter on a church staff. And this story about Thomas is in the lectionary for the Sunday after Easter every year, as you may know. And honestly, even back when I was a youth pastor, the Sunday after Easter and the Sunday after Christmas were like the two Sundays a year I'd get to preach. So I've reached the point where I don't need to (laughs) give a sermon about doubt every, every single year. Uh, so I'm not going to be talking about so-called doubting Thomas and focusing on doubt and belief. Instead, I'm going to focus on abolition politics, and I'm going to be reimagining Thomas and the disciples as people in the anti-racist movement. This will be an exercise in creativity here. I'm not making a historical claim that the apostles were anti-racist or that they would be today or that the reason we should be opposed to white supremacy is somehow because of them or because it's in the Bible. No, I'm just going to freely make some comparisons between this story about Thomas and Easter and our movement. Comparisons that I hope you'll find interesting and that I think are important. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Word is Resistance. introduced myself as a prison abolitionist. Prison abolition is a phrase and philosophy that's fairly new to me. It's been just over four years since I started learning about this radical way of thinking and living called prison abolition. So what is prison abolition? It's the idea that prisons should be abolished. The world 
would be a better place without prisons. And instead of building and maintaining prisons and the whole apparatus of oppression and extraction that they're a part of, the so-called prison industrial complex, instead of focusing on that, we should be putting our resources into ways of living that will actually allow us to flourish and keep us safe and make us well. We should create the world we want to live in. Instead of punishing people for being black or indigenous or poor or gender nonconforming, which is what prisons do, we should be creating community and encouraging communication and celebrating creativity and supporting each other. This is where our energy should be going instead of towards incarcerating people. So prison abolition is about creating another world and also giving up on the logic that drives so much of this world as it now exists. It's a change of focus, a change of values. It involves abolishing and also creating. Learn about, learning about prison abolition and practicing prison abolition has been an education for me, a journey, a voyage, if you will. And this education has happened in many ways through forming new relationships with people who have very different experiences from my own. It's come through visiting people in jail and exchanging mail and doing court support and, of course, just reading and conversing. Over the course of this education, as I've grown into this identity as a prison abolitionist, to the extent that I have, not that it's about labels per se, I've gone through a transformation. I've been changed. I now see the world differently. I have new skills, new awareness, and a new openness to what can be. And with this in mind, I'd like to share a famous quote from Marcel Proust, of all people, that maybe you've heard before. I'm thinking of this quote in relationship to radical education and formation, or becoming a part of the movement for liberation. Uh, this quote is from Marcel Proust. Here it is. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. One more time, let me say it again. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. In the last few years, as I've been getting educated on how to observe the world from an abolitionist perspective, from an anti-racist perspective, I've realized that the greatest change is within me. To use Proust's metaphor, I have new eyes. We can avoid the ableism of this metaphor by not letting this be about the sense of sight. And instead of saying new eyes, as if sight is necessary for knowledge or blindness is a problem, we could instead refer to a new perspective or new understanding or new belief. Where I'm going with this is that I've not just learned about a new topic or a new field or a new area to think about. I've learned new ways of understanding and analyzing and reacting to many aspects of our world, new ways of seeing and dreaming and creating. The future comes from within us. Prison abolition is not just about being down on prisons, which I am. I'm very down on prisons. But prison abolition is also about reimagining the questions that prisons allegedly attempt to solve. We have to ask ourselves again, what really keeps us safe? How do we want to live in the world together? What are the ways we can address harm and heal 
uh, without putting people in cages. When we can imagine new possibilities, uh, we have to uh, refer back to that quote again, new eyes, so to speak. When we can imagine new possibilities, we have new eyes, if you will. One of the key things we try to do in prison abolition and other anti-racist movements is try to challenge dominant perspectives and imagine the world differently. It's a matter of imagination. We seek not just to abolish what is not working, but also to imagine and create other possibilities. This is an issue of creativity. As friends of Surge Faith know, last week, uh, Holy Week, several faith communities announced their intentions to begin a process of divesting from policing. This is an act of extreme creativity and imagination. I understand that I see this as an expression of prison abolition. Here are people in community acknowledging change within themselves, change in how they understand the world and what their responsibility is within the world. It's a process of pursuing a new education or embarking on a real voyage of discovery or declaring a new faith, if you will, to divest from policing. One more time, the quote from Proust. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Thank God for the new eyes of these communities declaring their intention to divest from policing. Now, Thomas, resurrection, the Easter story, some connections between these things and all of this, and abolition and activism and anti-racism and divestment from policing. Imagine with me, just imagine, that Thomas and the other disciples were an anti-racist group, or an abolitionist perspective, or a local chapter of Surge. Imagine that. Again, I'm not saying they were, but just imagine that Jesus's friends were operating with some of our values and were a part of our movement here and now. Pretend that the scene from the Gospel according to John, uh, chapter 20, with Thomas and the others Pretend that this is a scene from one of our communities of resistance to empire. Uh, pretend for a moment that they were on a process of education, like those communities that are committing their intent to divest from policing. Pretend with me that Jesus' remaining friends had declared divestment from crucifixion. Ooh, what would that mean? Divestment from crucifixion. Pretend with me that they had declared divestment from Roman occupation and the other punitive structures of punishment that were killing them. Again, the disciples didn't do this, but what parallels can you imagine if they were an affinity group committed to resistance, like the anti-racist and abolitionist groups that you and I are a part of? What if they had trained together to commit to seeing the world differently and imagining new possibilities, possibilities that would bring life instead of death, that promote wellness instead of suffering, that share community resources instead of dividing and destroying people in order to turn a profit. Let me say this. I attended two weeks ago in my community an observer training, observer training. I'm part of a local sanctuary network. It's a group of churches and synagogues and uh, community organizers who uh, try to practice sanctuary together 
We visit people in detention. We participate in call-in campaigns. We do court support. We're working on creating an apartment in a local church uh, to actually be sanctuary for a family facing deportation. So two weeks ago, someone from the National Lawyers Guild, the radical criminal defense lawyer, came and talked to us, members of our sanctuary network, about what it means to have people in our local sanctuary group act as observers when we have events and actions. Very simply, the idea is someone needs to be designated to take notes, to record what happens, and to keep a record of what they witness. When the trainer said this, talked about just taking notes, recording what happens, keeping a record of what they witness, right away I thought of Thomas. And I thought, hmm, what if Thomas had agreed to be an observer in his group's actions? Someone whose role it was to watch and be present, to take notes and gather information. What if he was the point person who was supposed to serve as the observer, the guy who recorded things, I don't know, on his phone or who took notes? Given Thomas's interest in paying close attention, what he says about how he wants to see and observe and put the story together, my, my first thought as this lawyer was talking is that Thomas would have been very good in this role. I mean, except, of course, for the fact that Thomas wasn't there when his friends needed his help. Other than that, he would have been great. But unfortunately, Thomas somehow missed the first resurrection appearance on the first Sunday after Jesus' death. You know, you never know what's going to happen in the movement for liberation. I want to draw a really simple lesson from this. You need to show up. I'm not trying to make Thomas look stupid, but you need to be present. Maybe in case something really horrible goes down, or who knows, you might want to be there because something really rad is going to happen, like, you know, Jesus will rise from the dead. Uh, here's the thing. You don't know what's going to happen. People in liberatory movement work, we know this. We don't know what is going to happen. This is a good Easter lesson for us as we focus on the surprise of resurrection. It's so obvious, but we don't say it enough. In a time when there are so many predictions about what's going to happen or what this or that means, it's good for us to be able to say, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't. Sometimes we get surprised. Thomas and the other disciples, they were very well trained by Jesus. They had not had a National Lawyer Guild training, which is all right, but they had been very well educated and trained by Jesus. But still... They didn't know what was going to happen. It's okay to not know. It doesn't mean you're dumb or you don't care. Sometimes we don't know. Interestingly, in the Bible stories about the resurrection, it says again and again that the disciples did not know. They did not understand. They did not realize how things were unfolding. There's no shame in that. We're in the same boat. Politics is not just about, you know, predicting and knowing. It's about doing, engaging, praxis. Even when we make mistakes or misunderstand or don't show up for something, it doesn't mean we're out of the movement forever. Thomas made a mistake, so to speak, by not being present. That doesn't mean he was out of the group. Let's think about some reason why people uh, don't show up for something, why they miss out. Obviously, there are lots of reasons. But I think one of the biggest reasons 
sometimes is that people are scared about what's going to happen to them. Think of the detail of the locked doors from the Bible reading, the locked doors that the disciples were behind. It doesn't say Thomas was scared or that his fear kept him away that first Sunday night, but it would be understandable if uh, he had been scared. We get scared sometime too, don't we? (laughs) Sure, some of our fear is misplaced and ridiculous, but also sometimes we're afraid for good reasons. While it's absolutely true that white people are not targets of violence and oppression in in any way that is uh, the same to people of color, at the same time, I actually think that white people, sometimes we do have good reason to be scared about being involved in anti-racist work. Sometimes it's good to address and acknowledge that fear. There can be a high cost for being involved in anti-racist work. There can be loss. There can be harm. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't show up and shouldn't be involved. But fear can be real, and this can be complicated. So maybe, maybe Thomas was afraid. Maybe we are too. Don't feel you have to reduce Thomas to just being a good character or a bad character. You know, either someone you should imitate because he does everything right or someone who does everything wrong. It's much more complicated than that. Just like you and me. We make so many mistakes. Our record is all over the place. Hey, Thomas missed out on a really important event too. We all miss out sometime. But even though Thomas couldn't be there that night for whatever reason, Thomas still had his people and uh, knew that they needed to have each other's backs. I think this is an important lesson to do too. Know who your people are. Have community, have friends, have people you can count on who can count on you. You can't do this on your own. Of course you can't be at everything or do everything. It isn't about having perfect attendance. This is not a competition. We are collaborating. Have you ever missed a big event or a training or a march or an action or a trial or some important deadline that was really important to your movement? Don't feel that bad. Thomas missed the resurrection. Hey, no one can be present for everything. I know uh, that when I miss something, when I don't show up for something, when I check out uh, for something, when I, I should have been present, I know that the I know good organizers who always come back with saying to me, that's all right, you'll be there next time, or something encouraging like, that doesn't mean you can't be there for the next thing. And it's true. I sense the spirit with Jesus's friends, and especially with Thomas, this sense of invitation and deep collaboration that does not write people off. Nobody writes Thomas off because he missed something. For whatever reason, whether it was fear or not, who knows? Maybe he was just busy that night. I don't know. But uh, think again about this detail. Call our attention again to this detail of the locked doors. Hey, maybe even the, the disciples had accidentally locked Thomas out and didn't realize it. Who knows? The disciples were behind locked doors. Very importantly and very horribly, there is this nasty, brutal, anti-Semitic comment in the Bible's Bible that says that uh, the doors was locked because of fear of the Jews, it says. Uh, those words should uh, make you cringe. This is some nasty stuff. 
that makes Jewish people out to be violent and dangerous, fear of the Jews. It's no wonder that so many Christian communities continue to be comfortable with coding certain ethnic groups as immoral or inherently dangerous and violent. That gross rhetoric is right there in the Bible. Having said that, think about how these uh, locked doors remind us of the security culture that we practice in anti-racist work or abolition work. Now, I'm not talking about the anti-Semitic comment. Condemn the anti-Semitism and uh, distance yourself from it while also acknowledging uh, that it's there. But think about this locked door. What about making a connection with our movement and how we try to keep ourselves safe and the fear of the disciples as they tried to protect themselves too? obviously doing it without racist anti-Semitism. Can we imagine the disciples, for example, uh, you know, putting their smartphones in another room so they couldn't be tracked? Can you picture the disciples using Signal to communicate so no one could read their messages? Or maybe can you imagine the surviving 11 disciples all deleting their Facebook accounts so no one would be able to connect them to Jesus after he was killed? I'm just making this stuff up. But... I'm reimagining the apostles in light of some of our practices in our movement for liberation. Now, Thomas, again, wasn't there when Jesus first appeared and the doors were locked. But the other disciples still had a way of communicating with him safely, apparently. See, their practices around security weren't about creating secrecy within their own movement. Although, of course, they tried to stay safe, they didn't tear down their internal channels of connecting they could still communicate and share and connect with whoever they needed to share with. So when Thomas came back in the following week, the others could bring him back into the group. The group was better for it. Thomas was their observer, who was supposed to document and help the group keep track of what was going on. I'm thinking of this story as being about a group where people know their roles, where they share common values, and where they allow people to participate despite limitations and mistakes. That's a good model for church or for any community committed to liberation. In the story of John, uh, the story from the Gospel of John, this resurrection story, famously at the end, Jesus says that everyone, not just people who see like Thomas, but everyone can find a new way of experiencing life that's not limited to a physical sense of vision. It's that famous line where Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It makes me think that what is most important is that we have other ways of seeing. Back to the quote from Marcel Proust that I shared at the beginning. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. New eyes. I'm saying that go beyond what we can see. Jesus talks about a faith that goes beyond sight of what is around us. Abolition goes beyond what we can see now, too. Divesting from police and committing ourselves to a radical anti-racist ethic supersedes our physical sense of vision as well, taking us to a place where we use
creativity, imagination. We have to learn together how to do this. Go on a voyage. Be educated. Transform ourselves. So, a, a simple, in, in conclusion, a simple invitation uh, for you is attend an observer training and put it into practice. Learn to see the world differently by being creative and imaginative with people who uh, you are committed to. I am going to a court watch training in a few weeks. I'm getting trained with people in my county uh, to just go to court and observe how the district attorney operates. Just watching and learning and forming relationships, uh, but not just seeing what I see in the courtroom. Also trying to embrace those new eyes, so to speak, that Proust and Jesus talk about. A new way of seeing. Let's learn to move beyond what we can observe now uh, so that future generations will know a different reality from the one that is uh, proven fatal to so many. Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there, and transcripts are available on our website. As always, the music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast.